this Friday. Your favorite emotions are back on the big screen in Disney and Pixar's Inside Out 2. It's time to greet your Team Riley. It's anger. Let me at him. Fear. Safety checklist is complete. Disgust. Ew, ew. Ugh. Sadness is in the house. Oh, no. Hello, I'm anxiety. I'm one of Riley's new emotions. Disney and Pixar's Inside Out 2. There's a part two? We're going. Ready PG. Parental guidance suggested. Only theaters Friday. Get tickets now. This is the Book Riot Podcast, the weekly news and talk show about what's new, cool, and worth talking about in the world of books and reading. This is episode 16, and we are recording on Friday, August 23rd. I'm Jeff O'Neill, and I'm here with Rebecca Shinsky. We're the editors of BookRiot.com. Rebecca, I'm back. I know, Jeff. I'm so glad that you're back. I had a lot of fun with Ann Kingman. Great show. Yeah, books on the... Books on the nightstand last week. She's my fairy pod parent, but I'm glad to have you back. I feel like uh, like I'm missing an appendage when I'm sans Jeff. Well, you know, it's it does feel you miss a week and two weeks go by, and you've got stuff to talk about and things to say, and it just gets all bottled up. You know, and, I think uh, the last time that we were separated, the show after that was like an hour and fifteen. Minutes I know we're long. trying not to do that today, but we got you know. I keep I, I say this every show, and I'm like, you know, late August, there's not going to be that much to talk about. Wrong. No, things are happening. Things are things are happening. It's kind of a slow boil. There's a lot of little interesting things to get mm-hmm. to, but um, there's a lot of stuff going on. Um, you know, we didn't put in the show notes. And I just I just realized we forgot something. But anyway, did- we'll get to some follow up. That's a Ooh, teaser. They call I'm it the intrigued. business a teaser. Um, let's do some follow up real quick before we let's get into the show. Barnes and Noble. Mm-hmm. They had an earnings call. I think that's what you call it. I'm not really sure. They talked about how much money they didn't make and how they're not <laughs> going to make money in the future. Sad trombone, uh, <laughs> But I, we talked on the show, or maybe it was um, when you were gone, with, uh, I talked with Chuck Wendig mm-hmm. this, when they first, earlier this summer, said, you know what, we're going to stop making our own e-readers and the Nook part of our business is sort of going to be on the back burner. And a lot of us in the literary Booknet, we're like, what? Yeah. <laughs> you know, don't you see where things are going? Like, print is probably going to stay around, and maybe it won't. But e-reader, e-readers are the thing to keep. That's not a horse you want to get off right, right now. And someone over there said, you know what? I think the internet is right, and they have essentially reversed their Nook strategy. They said we're actually going to keep making our devices. Actually, we're going to have a new colored tablet coming out pretty soon, um, and that's what we're going to do now. So. I'm conflicted about Barnes and Noble. Not like they're going to listen to me, but I don't like the the waffling. Like that's never a good sign. Yeah, it's it's never good, and it's I guess it's hard to take them seriously about these declarations because they just reversed on yeah. the declarations they made like a month ago. Right. Well, um, and you're not super confident if you're in the market for a new e-reader. You're, if you know this information, I guess most people wouldn't. You wouldn't be super excited to like go buy a Nook right now. Like, are they in this thing or are they not in this thing? Right. Who knows if there will be support for them a year right. from now? Um, what's what's going to happen? Ebooks that I buy and they're on Nook or whatever. Yeah, there's just it's not. This is not great. I would not yeah. feel great if I were a Barnes and Noble shareholder about watching this go back and forth. Um, their revenues were down eight and a half percent to 1.3 billion, which, you know, is still a lot of money, but down eight and a half percent is not great. And the company saw a net loss of $87 million. That's not good. That is not I don't know much about finances, but down $87 story. million isn't right. good. Apparently, investors had expected a loss of 81 cents per share, and instead they incurred a loss of $1.56 per share. So yeah. this loss was, I guess, twice uh, what mm. they were expecting. And the Nook business shares were down 
over 11 or Barnes and Noble shares were down over 11%. Yeah. I mean, it'd be interesting to see, I guess we'll know at the end of 2013, I guess you kind of have to line up Barnes and Noble revenue with publishing as a whole. I mean, it's, I don't know. It's, it's hard for them to buck the trend of publishing mm-hmm. as a whole. So the publishing in, at the end of 2013 looks to be down about what Barnes and Noble is down. It's hard to blame them or like think they should be able to do much better. My sense is that they're, they're, underperforming the industry at a whole and that, yeah. that you don't like to see. And it seems to me like they're having a hard time deciding what to focus on. Like yeah. the, the Kindle Fire rolled out as a pretty solid competitor to the iPad. And mm-hmm. um, if you put it side by side with the iPad mini, they look very similar. But Barnes & Noble has these like sort of straight up, very simple e-readers, you know, the um, the Glow is yeah. tiny. They have an e-ink one that's not backlit, but then they also have these tablets and it seems like they can't decide if they should stick with simple right. um, and just go after the people who want a less expensive, straightforward e-reader, or if they should be putting time and development into tablets, trying to compete with the iPad and the Kindle Fire and to get a chunk of that business as well. Um, yeah. Yeah, I'm, I'm conflicted. And I have a Nook tablet that I bought, I guess, about a year and a half ago mm-hmm. that um, is great for reading, but I don't actually use any of the tablet features. <laughs> right. <laughs> yeah, it. that's interesting. I mean, I think people's use uses of uh, e-readers and tablets is still in process because mm-hmm. um, I also was like an e-reader only, like e-ink dedicated e-reader person for a while. And then I went to my big iPad um, when the retina screen came out, which I liked, but that got too big. So now I'm on an iPad mini where I do all my e-reading. And I, I think I just like the flexibility. I don't even really use it. Like I don't jump onto email or Twitter when I'm reading. I just like that it's backlit. Mm-hmm. So, and you know, I've got two young kids and the lights are off to keep them quiet and asleep a lot of the time. Oh yeah. I think so, those, the commercials about how backlit e-readers are like saving marriages. Yeah. Yeah. Right. Accurate to me. My husband no longer has to like put the pillow over his head yeah, because definitely. I'm reading past my bedtime. And I don't read outside because I just don't. Um, so well, because you, know, you don't go outside. I don't Jeff. go outside. Um, I, I just sit Overrated here. I just nature. sit here waiting for the podcast to start <laughs> and weeping. Um, so anyway, We'll see. Um, I, I guess if we if you had said you feel better or worse about Barnes & Noble today than the day after they made the initial announcement in the summer, I think we'd have to say a little bit better, but still not great. Yeah, it seems like at least now they have picked up on the direction yeah. that things are going and that it's not smart to abandon your digital strategy. Right. Um, what their actual dig- digital strategy will continue to be, though, I'm I'm worried. I I was previously cautiously optimistic about Barnes and Noble, like about six months ago, and I think now I'm just cautious. Yeah, I, th- I think so. And we'll just we'll end on this, and this is kind of indicative. Is the CEO said something to the effect in the comp- in the earnings call, like, you know, we're open to anybody's ideas. And you know, I think that's why you have a CEO, right? Because they right, have yeah, ideas that's about the idea. stuff. I'm pretty sure that if you get the CEO's paycheck, you're expected to yeah. have ideas. There's not, there shouldn't be like a comment box for a corporate <laughs> strategy outside the CEO's office, I don't think. I, maybe I'm wrong about that. He's probably read you know, the seven habits of highly effective people, and he knows what he's talking about. But <laughs> uh, All right. You want to do the sponsor? You do sure. the sponsor. Yeah. Uh, our first sponsor this week is Panorama City by Antoine Wilson. Uh, it is a novel about a self-declared slow absorber named Oppen Porter, uh, who's sort of in the style of Ignatius J. Riley from A Confederacy of Dunces. And Oppen thinks that he's dying. He is not dying. Uh, but since he thinks that he's dying, he uses a tape recorder to make note of everything that he thinks will be of use to his unborn son uh, as his son becomes a man of the world. Uh, and so the book traces 40 days and 
nights in Oppen Porter's life. He lives in the San Fernando Valley. Um, and he, I guess, primarily interacts with his aunt and a guy who's sort of an outlaw philosopher. But um, along the way and in between his interactions with his aunt and this outlaw philosopher, um, he constantly is encountering people who think that their way is the right way for him, which I guess you're sort of asking for if you're going around trying to record things that will be of use to your child who's not born yet. Like people I would will, think so, yeah, right. People will want to offer you their philosophy and their way of doing things, and most of us think that our way of doing things is good. Uh, so this is uh, Panorama City is a story about finding your way in the world um, and figuring out who you are in it, uh, and the... Uh, sort of the notes that I've read about the book, as well as many of the reviews do compare it to a confederacy of dunces. So it sounds like it's insightful, but also funny. Um, I'm inclined to like any character who can admit about himself that he's a slow absorber. Right. <laughs> also, that's just a great term. <laughs> uh, so that is Panorama City by Antoine Wilson. Thanks for sponsoring the show. And we will have a link to it in the show notes if you're interested in checking it out. Awesome. Okay. Well, Unfortunately, our our lead stories this week are we lost some folks. Was it a rough uh, week? For rough folks? week um, for um, elder statesmen of the literary world. Um, I want to start with Albert Murray, who died this week at age ninety seven. Um, and uh, I'd say, well, I mean, I think forgotten in a lot of in a lot mm-hmm. of cases, underread. My personal opinion. Yeah, when you said you were going to talk about him on the show, I had a who. Yeah. Right. Um, a black writer, a critic, novelist, essayist, um, who died this week in Harlem at the age of 97. He was born in Alabama um, in, let's see, let me do the math. That would make it 1916 oh. um, and became a literary and jazz critic. And he also um, was a co-author of Count Basie's autobiography um, and uh, with Whit Marsalis, co-founded the Jazz at Lincoln Center, which become the institution of American jazz uh, here in New York. Great space. If you're ever in New York and looking for some place to listen to jazz, you go up to Time Warner Center. Beautiful spot at Columbus Circle and some amazing vistas and um, out-of-this-world music. Um, but he's a forgotten figure. I, if you're interested in checking out Albert Murray, there's a couple of things I'd recommend. His first book is called Omni Americans, and it's the black and it's a uh, it's essays called uh, on black experience in the on American culture. That was 1970. Um, his most I think influential novel is called Train Whistle Guitar. Train Whistle Guitar. I know that's what it's called. I think it was the most influential. 1974, um, and then Trading Twelves. He had a long. Um, what do you call it? Uh, epistolary relationship with Ralph Ellison. Oh. Um, and the selected letters of Ralph Ellison and Albert Murray is a really interesting volume to see them talk about um, the black experience in America as they understood it and culture and art and the blues. And my favorite Albert Murray quote, he said, is the blues um, are equipment for living, which I've mm. always thought as being particularly insightful. So fare thee well, Albert Murray. Yes, I will be frantically downloading Trading Twelves as yeah, soon as we really, Yeah, really good. I don't even know if it's on ebook. I'd be surprised if it's, you know, it's one of those things. Murray mm-hmm. really fell between Ellison and then the later generation of um, black writers, you know, hmm. between, kind of between Ellison and Morrison in that 60s and early 70s era, um, and somewhat overlooked these days uh, for reasons that, you know, aren't worth going into here. But um, worth noting his passing, um, definitely. And then the the big one this week that most people were talking about was Elmer Leonard, um, died this week at the age of 87 uh, from complications due to stroke. Mm. I mean, 
He wrote so many books that we all know the stories of because he had 19 novels turned into movies. Um, you know, Ombre, I'm trying to think here. 310 um, to Yuma. 310 to Yuma, which is based on a short story. Uh, golly. Um, Get Shorty, one of the more famous ones. The current one is Justified, the TV series. It's not a movie. Oh, I had no idea. Yeah, that's based on one of his characters. Um, that appeared in several novels and a short story. Um, and then uh, Out of Sight mm-hmm. um, was based on one of his novels. Um, boy, and he wrote a couple of original screenplays. And just an all-around sort of... He just he just was... His nickname was Dutch. And I, I think of him as Dutch Leonard because that's, you know, because I'm cool and I think of people by their nicknames. It's cool. Um, I just had coffee with Bob De Niro. Yeah, right. Uh, you know, he he wrote really great characters, um, really compelling, fun, funny, grim dialogue. Um, some of the hallmarks of Elmore Leonard and just, you know, he was a a good guy by all accounts. You know, people liked him. He was in the film business, TV business, wrote 46 books, I think something like that. Um, so, you know, a real influential person, a, a famous, list of 10 rules for writing, which, you know, I'm not particularly fond of that he wrote, but it's making the circles and definitely his style. A couple of the famous ones are use, uh, you can get, you get one exclamation point every hundred thousand words. And don't write the parts that people like yeah, to skip. Leave out the parts that people skip. Um, never use something other than said for dialogue. Mm. Um, I guess he implored us to do that. Anyway, I'm making bad jokes. <laughs> oh, um, so, that's I, so my one, yeah, my one, know, uh, I, I didn't, I, I got one factoid for you. Ooh. So Jackie Brown was based on his novel Rum Punch. Mm-hmm. And it is the only um, movie Tarantino directed that's not based on a Tarantino screenplay. Interesting. An original Tarantino. It's the only adaptation he's ever done. That's interesting. Which apparently Tarantino's regretted. He's If he had to do over again, he'd never do huh. um, an adaptation of someone else's work. So that's that's how much... Leonard was influential in movies that even Tarantino adapted. Mm-hmm. And did you know that Tarantino said a couple years ago that he's going to stop making movies at age 60 and write novels? Did you know? No, but th- I will read the crap out of those. Yeah, I, he, I can kind of see him being sort of like a neo uh, Elmer Leonard. Yeah, I think it'll be interesting. Um, anyway. And one thing that is always you know an inter- interesting to see when an author passes away is the reaction within the publishing industry yeah. from people who knew him and i was really heartened this week um we hear a lot or i you know i hear a lot i have a lot of bookseller friends um about authors who misbehave um and right. on social media it's easy to hear stories about people behaving badly but everything that i saw from people uh, who work for publishers and uh, from booksellers this week was that elmore leonard was a really great, nice guy who was just as kind to um, junior mm-hmm. publicists as he was to his, you know, senior fancy editor, um, and who was kind to the people at his signings and to bookstore owners uh, who hosted him for events. And when people come out of the woodwork to share things like that on Facebook and Twitter, um, I think it's it's a great reminder of what a cool community publishing can be, but also um, just heartening to me to yeah. know that somebody with that kind of success, with forty six novels and ten books adapted into film um you know stayed grounded that's fantastic yeah and you know both murray and leonard and this generation that's you know of writers that were have been losing and will be losing for the next few years at least they all served in the military too which is interesting i you know we sometimes forget both leonard and murray served in the 
um, in the in the military, I think both Navy uh, actually, mm-hmm. um, and that's an influence that I think is 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 not. I'm not sure how. I'm not sure in 50 years that I'm that we're going to have as many of the writers that we're watching pass on have military experience, which I just think is interesting. I don't know why. I just find that particularly hmm. um, meaningful. That you know, all the, I guess that just goes to show how many people served in the mid-century in America, um, men especially. All right. Mm-hmm. So enough sad. Enough sad. Good on you, Leonard and Murray. We hope there's a big typewriter with a cushy chair up there for you. <laughs> All right. You want to go first? Yeah, Let's you want to talk, talk some tech? We got, te- we got a million tech things to do, so we're going to kind of hit these pretty quick. So right. le- lead so, us off. Uh, I guess my, my first two stories here that I've been looking at this week are about um, in- basically enhanced reading experiences. I'm blushing <laughs> already. I mean, it's all you can <laughs> do. You just, give you- just, go, just go for the big one. Let's just, just get it out of the Just go for the big one? Yes, go here. All right. Uh, so a company called Vibe Ease, which I will just let you go ahead and guess what that might be, are um, conducting an Indiegogo crowdfunding campaign to um, create and distribute an adult toy uh, that syncs to the action, aha uh-huh action, mm-hmm. in audio, in adult audiobooks. This crowdfunding campaign needed $15,000 to succeed. They are still six days away from the end of their campaign, and they've currently made $101,000. Well, I mean, there aren't enough euphemisms in the world to talk about this. Um, (laughs) I I mean, all jokes aside, and there are a lot of jokes. There are many jokes. This is a fish in... Barrels I think this is up. kind of a good idea. Am I, I wrong? Think, okay, I think it's really smart. Yeah, um, I've been I have been thinking about this a lot um, in the last week since I saw it. So the copy uh, on the campaign, which we'll put a link to in the show notes, um, talks a lot about Fifty Shades of Grey and how Fifty Shades of Grey has brought this discussion about sexuality back into, um, you know, or has created an interesting conversation around sexuality in books and in American culture in a way that no other book had done, maybe since Fear of Flying. Um, So you can't get Fifty Shades of Grey on the vibe ease, but basically you, you get this toy and then you also download um, the software for it onto your smartphone and in your smartphone and then in the app you can choose from a whole bunch of different stories right. um, some of them are free and some of them you buy and it seems to me like there are a whole host of scenarios within these stories of course um, right and then you get yourself hooked up with your toy and you listen to the story and if it says that something is happening gently in the story then the toy mm-hmm. vibrates gently and if it is more vigorous right um, well, I'm really glad you, that no one can see me. You want to climax at the climax, I guess. Right. That's what we're looking for here. <laughs> right. Uh, and so you can pick all kinds of different stories to hear. Um, also, it's interactive. Like, you can have your partner record their voice. Oh. And then you can talk. If, te- if you are so technically or digitally inclined, um, you can then like set the settings yourself for how the vibrations will go to match your partner's voice telling you the story. Interesting. And here, and here is the kicker and the potential. Wait, there's a kicker? That, there's, there, a kicker. there's a kicker this, to this? I think is like a hilarious and super smart thing okay. is that uh, also your partner can download the app on their phone and can control it from wherever they are. Whoa. So long distance, right. re- long distance relationships need not be... <laughs> 
so quite sad. so long distance. <laughs> <laughs> right. Uh, it's. I think this is pretty smart. I, have I to, think it like, is too. I mean, there I are a lot say, of weirdnesses and questions yeah, around. I it, backed right? this campaign for science. Right for science. <laughs> um, I'm interested because it, it seems like even if the if the action is synced to what's happening in the story, every person's body is different and will need a different, you know, sort of pattern to, sure. to climax at the climax. Right. So I love the theory, but I'm, I'm really interested how well this will work in practice. Hmm. Um, I wonder if you could um, say, adjust the output, so to speak. <laughs> um, you know, if like you want a little more here and a little less there, like can Maybe. you go move seems, the dial a little bit? Under? It seems like it's pretty customizable. Yeah. Um, it, after they wrap up this project and I get a hilarious day of mail at some point, mm-hmm. perhaps I will report back. <laughs> yeah, we might have to make that iTunes. Uh, we marked that explicit for that particular episode. So we'll put a link in the show notes if you want to get in on one or five or ten of these. There's bulk yeah, pricing available. You've got six days left to contribute to the Vibes Indiegogo. And if nothing else, you should definitely go and watch the video on this campaign. Yeah, we won't, um, we won't spoil it for you. It's, it's kind of unspoilable, but... Um, it's pretty great. All right. It's okay. hard to top that. Let's uh, go to we something got, a little more... we got some more, more tech stuff. <laughs> more family-friendly. This is a little bit related because it's about sort of secondary experiences while you're reading. Um, yeah. Google wants to patent audio trigger points for digital reading. Mm-hmm. So you're sitting there reading your book and some sound happens or there's some reason that you might want to hear something. And this would actually automatically play it. So the example they have is for you know, like kids' books and stuff like that. But I think it would be pretty cool. You see this a lot of times in books where you're reading along and then someone hears a song, a character mm-hmm. hears a song, and you get the lyrics on the page, which doesn't at all capture the experience of listening to music. You have to know the song to be able right. to um, recreate in your mind at all. So that might be one interesting case. I'm not a huge fan of these secondary experiences. Uh, you know, all jokes about the first one aside, like I'm, I'm talking more about like, and then all of a sudden a video pops up and you get more information or it smells like trees when they're out. You know, that doesn't seem that interesting to me. I'm a little wary of this kind of stuff. Um, but I also know that I don't, I can't predict the future very well and someone could do something awesome. Um, yeah. and I can't really predict this. So what do you think, think about this one? I think it's cool. Um, I really love that people are trying these things. Um, for kids, I think it's awesome to just have them built in. Yeah. And if you're like, I am not a super fantastic reader of children's books out loud. I don't Mm. do excellent voices or anything. Like I can do a pretty wicked Skippy John Jones, but Mm -hmm. that is where my talent um, begins and ends. So it would be neat to have sound effects or voices or like lions roaring or something built into the book um, as the pages turn. But for for reading novels, I would want to be able to to turn it off or to have it be you know like sort of opt in, like click here if you want to see this video they're referring to. click if you want to see or if you want to hear the song that these lyrics are from that sort of thing but mm-hmm. um i've been reading the new margaret atwood mad adam right and the people are sort of they're like out in the woods and there are these crazy hybrid animals like no i don't ways. like this i'm scared already don't say it <laughs> right but it would be I, like for margaret atwood for the kind of experience that you get from her books anyway like i would sort of love it if i could hear the sound of the pigoons trampling oh, through the forest huh. um just or, some like background. Yeah. Or there's this species like sort of not quite human because they were bioengineered to be better than human species oh, called the Krakers. And they, mm-hmm. they sing constantly. You know what? That always ends well. 
we've right. done this in literature right. movies it's gonna, that like it's a slightly Margaret, better than human bioengineered species right. always turn out to be super friendly. always goes super well in Margaret <laughs> yeah, That's right. <laughs> Um, uh, but these these they, the beings sing, and mm-hmm. when one of them is injured, they make a purring sound. Like everyone gathers around and purrs over the injured being, and the purring is like bioengineered into them to help them heal. So it'd be kind of cool to hear huh. them sing, um, or to hear the purring if you wanted to. But I don't think I'd want it to pop up every time there was a reference yeah. so, to it. Uh, it's a, done very well. It could be very cool. You could also see this being done horribly badly. Oh yeah. So. Uh, you know, like, also, I guess, maybe like, all technology. Maybe there's an opportunity here for um, for adult themes as well. Sure, yeah. <laughs> I was, Absolutely. I was genuinely curious, because I'm just starting to really get into audiobooks again, and I asked, and I'm, you know, on this romance reading adventure lately, um, so I asked Twitter if there were sound effects on audiobooks of adult, like, of oh, romance right. and erotica, because mm-hmm. um, I sort of can't imagine listening to a romance novel, but especially not if there are sound effects for love scenes, um, and it turns mm. out that there aren't unless it's written into the dialogue. Um, just the thought of, like, driving in my car hearing that makes me blush, um, but maybe you could build it into the ebook if you wanted well, to. Well, you know what? Someone's going to see the results from that Indiegogo thing, right. and they're going to be like, you know what? There's lots of opportunity here for lots of different things. This is a multi-sensory experience. Um, Okay, let's do another technology story. This one, you and I are are both interested in talk about piracy and e-books. So um, one of the largest book publishers in the world, hold that thought for a minute, we're going to talk about large book publishers here in a little bit, Springer. Um, The CEO gave a talk and a lot about the stuff that, CEOs of publishing houses talk about, but the thing that we found most interesting, he says, is, while we have not yet seen harmful, harmful effects of ebook piracy and file sharing on our ebook portfolios, these are nevertheless considered serious topics, which I think is a pretty good encapsulation of the whole attitude towards ebook piracy and publishing. Mm-hmm. We don't. It's we can't see it's a problem, but we're still nervous. <laughs> we're still worried. <laughs> right. Um, we don't have any evidence that it's a problem, but we're still going to lock everything in DRM. Just yeah. because we think we should. And, you know, I think there's, you know, ebook piracy as a non issue, I think has several, or there's several reasons ebook piracy is not as big of a problem in, in books as it is in, say, music or movies, which I guess I've heard it can be a pretty big problem. As mm-hmm. I was, I went to college in the late 90s, so I know all about music piracy, oh, or yes. at least my friend does. Um, <laughs> and, and one is, I think books are such a time investment that you don't mind paying as much for them. And the kinds of people who buy books love books enough that they want the book. Mm-hmm. And and we should say, I think, that they're defining harm and danger in terms of their revenue. Revenue, right. Sorry, I just assumed that. Yeah, you're absolutely right yeah. to spell that out. Um, it's not like, you know, ebook pirates are going to come to your house and take all your ebooks. Uh, <laughs> so that would be interesting. Or just, I think it's a, like, it's a bad karma thing and it makes authors upset. Right. Um, but this is a, like, it's a story that I would like to just push and shout about a yeah. lot. That if if more publishers come out and, and say this, then we can really start to talk to publishers and to authors in particular, because I've, in the last year or so, it's really been authors, at least that I've seen, writing pieces about, you know, don't be the jerk who pirates books and takes money out of our pockets. Yeah. And, and maybe, I mean, that's sort of a piece that Springer didn't address in this piece is... Okay, so it's not hurting the publisher's revenue, but is it 
affecting um, I don't see how author royalties. I guess it would. It, aren't it those correlated? Yeah, they're tied together. Um, yeah. So let us fight. I mean, let us fight like reactionary uh, DRM usage with data. Right. <laughs> I'm going to put on my cape of data. Yeah, <laughs> right. And I, I don't know. I mean, I think it's also kind of hard actually to get an ebook onto your e reading device if you're not a power user that didn't yeah, come from a, think, a vendor. I think you have to, you, I mean, you'd have to know. I don't know how to use like a bit torrent thing to yeah, torrent. I, I think we're legally not allowed to talk about how one would do it actually. <laughs> uh, yeah, I just have, yeah. I'm just saying I have no uh, idea. I think that's um, aiding and abetting. Um, but yeah, the, it, it's not easy. It's not easy. Yeah. Um, and of the all thing, the, I'm thinking now, like of all the people that I know who love to read, one of them has told me that he downloaded a pirated ebook of something. And it was a case where the book wasn't available um, regularly as an ebook and he didn't want to buy it in print, but somebody sure. had found a way to upload it and make yeah. it available. So anyway, that's it, that's one coming from the establishment saying the thing that we're all, I think, on the consumer side sort mm -hmm. of feeling like, chill out about ebook piracy, um, and you know, not not only get rid of DRM, but like stop with the moralizing and it's you know it's kind of like getting a lecture from someone about something you didn't do, like it just mm -hmm. feels insulting. Um, yeah, it's not and happening. condescending. So okay, that's I'm I'm cool. I'm I'm glad to hear that, and I hope it stays true. Um, I don't yeah. want it just to feel true. I'm glad that it actually is true as far as we know. Um, RS2 Audible, audible.com, audiobooks, 100,000 titles available, more than 100 titles available from audible.com. Um, basically, if you have a way to play audiobooks on your phone, you can use audible.com or iPod Touch or your Zoom or something like that. Over 500 devices supported. Really any genre you want to you check out, they've got, they've got you covered. And we've got a deal for you. If you want to try audible.com, um, you go to audibletrial.com slash bookriot. And there you can get an, a free trial. You download a free audiobook, free 30-day trial. See what you like. See if you have – if you've never tried an audiobook, you should try it. I, yeah. I, think, I think a lot of people are coming to it new. We talked about a story a couple weeks ago. Hachette had more than 30% year-over-year -year growth in audiobooks. I think there's a lot of new people coming to audiobooks. It's easier than ever to mm -hmm. get an audiobook uh, in a place that's easy for you. Um, and so try one out. You know, it helps the show if you try it out for sure, but I think it's also something that might make your reading and, like, intellectual and art life just better. Don't you think? Is that, yes. That's not just a pitch, I don't think. No, I think that's I think, true. I think it definitely is, and I have a recommendation. If oh, you yes, excellent. If you want to find a, uh, a book to use your free Audible credit for, because um, I've got Audible on my iPhone now, and my husband and I went on a road trip earlier this week, um, and I was like, well, I want to listen to something on audio to keep us busy for our 10-hour round trip, but I don't know what it what I want. Um, we are both sort of in the mood for fun nonfiction. So I used just the search features on audible.com to select. You can search um, on their advanced search for the length of the book that you want. Oh, so I nice. searched for something between six and 10 hours, something that was nonfiction and then by highest rated. And we came across um, a book that I had never heard of before called Provenance, how a con man and a forger rewrote the history of modern art. Man, um, I love this stuff. Go for it's it. I'm so sorry. great. By Lainey Salisbury and Ali Sujo. Um, it's about a British uh, businessman. Well, he presents himself as a businessman, but he's really just a, a very uh, skillful con artist who finds a guy who is a skilled painter and uh, they create uh, imitations of modern, sort of the modern masters 
uh, work and they sell them to collectors who maybe you know couldn't afford a Picasso but would like to think that they can afford something that's Picasso. Wait, wait, is this fiction or nonfiction? It's nonfiction. Okay. Uh, they want to afford something that's like Picasso adjacent. Uh, and so the the book is, it's fantastic. It's really well paced. Um, it's this nice backstory of how the con man and the painter found each other and how they established this business model over several years together and sort of gradually roping other people into it, um, getting paintings sold at auction at Sotheby's and Christie's for thousands of dollars that experts um, validated as real. Uh, and the title of the book, Provenance, refers to the paperwork that comes along with a painting that establishes the chain of custody, like who has um, had possession of the painting from the time from for any piece of work from the time that it was created up until the present. So it first it was sold to a gallery and then it went to a private collector. And uh, the, the con man becomes really good at establishing fake paperwork for these provenances, for these fake works of art. Um, so I am up to the part where they're about to get caught, I think. Um, mm. and I love this stuff. Like, yeah, this heist, is great. Heist stories, Ocean's Eleven sort of. Thomas master. Crown Affair. Yeah. Um, at last year I read, or maybe two years ago, I read and loved The Mark Inside by Amy Reading, which was published by Knopf and was a history of con artistry, sort of how con artistry came to be uh, in the early mm -hmm. 20th century. And this is a great companion read i'm like it's everything that i can do not to turn it on and listen to it and then just like rewind and tell my husband that i haven't did, finished did we already it talk about the art forger by b.a shapiro did you read that it's I a, didn't it's a read novel it. about uh, shockingly an art forger mm -hmm. which i you know i'm a sucker for this stuff too and it's, yeah. it's a lot of fun i actually because th this is what we're going to do right now apparently i just saw that it's Reese Witherspoon is reading it right now on the beach. Someone's like posted a picture of her huh. reading a book and she was reading the art forge. Like, I've read that book. Um, you know, and like yeah, her, I, I, do I can be a drunken uh, jerk to cops. Yeah, so I do secretly uh, love it. Like people magazine does the thing where they ask celebrities, what have you read lately? Yeah. And I have to like, as much as I hate to admit it, I do love it when, you know, like it turns out that Bradley Cooper and I have read the same thing. Yeah, that's right. Um, so anyway, so, so that was we're, we're talking about around. Audible. That's a yeah. You're talking about the book. Give me the name again and the author. It's pro just so uh, Provenance, How a Con Man and a Forger Rewrote the History of Modern Art. It's by Lainey Salisbury and Ali Sujo. Awesome. And we'll drop that in the show notes. It was published by Penguin in 2010. Uh, so audibletrial.com slash bookriot for your, tr your free Audible test run. That's awesome. I, I prefer... Um, non-fiction on audio. I don't do well with fiction on audio. So that's, you know, if you're new to audio, uh, that's something to think about. Like try a couple different genres. Mm -hmm. Maybe there's one that works for you better than others. Some people really like the, um, some fiction um, narration, Neil Gaiman and, you know, Jim Dale and Stephen Fry and some mm -hmm. of them. And there's others that are really well known. I like the nonfiction. I don't know why I can't explain it. I don't have to explain it. That's just the way it is. Yeah, I think it's a nice um, – if, if fiction, people's tastes are so particular, yeah. I think, in fiction. And at least in my house, we don't – there's not much overlap between what my husband and I read in fiction. But we can usually agree on ah. a nonfiction topic that sounds interesting to both of us. And I was like – it's, it's kind of like – it's just like super long NPR. Yeah, I was like, it's about an art heist. <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> he said, sold. 
I, I change it. I change up the order on you. So you're up for new books. Oh, for new books. Yeah, I thought, right. you well, know, we're talking about books. Let's may just as do well. new books. Yeah. Roll, Good week roll, roll for new. Here. Yeah. Good week for new books. So we've been hearing about Night Film by Marisha Pessel for, it feels like months and months and forever. Seriously. Uh, it was the big galley to get at Book Expo America and Night Film is out now. Um, as always, the new books that we talk about have already been published and you can download them or run to your local bookshop and pick them up. Uh, Night Film is about an investigative reporter who um, has been interested in the family of this reclusive horror film director uh, for a very long time. And now the horror film director's daughter has died. It looks like suicide, but the investigator suspects that it might not be as straightforward as Mm -hmm. that. So he is going to um, dig into this family's dirt um, and into the dark stuff that's in these horror films and see what he can find out. And there's sort of this odd cast of characters that he picks up along the way. Um, I've read part of this. I haven't finished it. Um, but the format of the book is really interesting. The first, like the first 18 pages look like, uh, a slideshow that you might see at the New York um, for the girl's obituary, um, after she's died. And Anne uh, was saying on the show last week that random house has created an app for this or a website, maybe both. Mm-hmm. Um, I'll find it and put it in the show notes where you'll be able to scan symbols inside the print edition of the book to unlock extra content and sort of Easter egg types of things to learn more about this mystery that's built into the story. Uh, so cool experimentation in the format of the book, but also some cool tech experimentation happening there. Um, I think if you love film um, and you're into sort of like that sort of a thing, you might really love the book. Um, it's getting mixed reviews, but to me that sort of indicates it's worth yeah, picking it's interesting, it up, right? pick it up and see if it's going to work for you or not. Download a sample or, you know, thumb through it at a bookstore and yeah. see if it's right for you. Okay. Yeah. That's the big... That's I mean, a little unusual to have that. Big, I mean, that's a big title to come out of this yeah, late in August, a, isn't it? It's a weird, like... Are we getting it, ready for fall? I mean, We I are. Maybe they wanted it out before Labor Day travel. Maybe. But it feels to me like the kind of thing that would normally get published in, like, October. Yeah. Anyway, I, who cares about that? Uh, I'm just sort of Yeah, curious. publishing season's super exciting. Super stuff. exciting, yeah. Let's, okay, let's wake <laughs> him up with another book. What do you got? The next one is the paperback release of What in God's Name by Simon Rich. Uh, who is a comic writer. He's a young guy. He used to write for SNL. And um, his collection of short stories, The Last Girlfriend on Earth, is one of the best and funniest things that I've read in a long time. So in what in God's name, uh, we are at Heaven, Inc., which is the grossly mismanaged corporation in the sky. And for as long as anyone can remember, the founder and CEO, known in some circles as God, has been phoning it in. (laughs) So (laughs) God decides that he's like going to close down heaven. (laughs) And uh, it's up to the corporate heaven drones uh, to sort of carry on without him. God spends a lot of time on the golf course. And when he does show up at work, um, he spends most of his time Googling himself and reading what humans have been blogging about. (laughs) That's awesome. Uh, So when God closes down heaven, he's also going to, he's going to destroy earth as well. Oh, Um, well, shut it all down. Shut it down. (laughs) Right. Uh, It seems to me 
that uh, you, you would need to you need to bring a certain sense of humor to the Simon Rich story. Mm-hmm. <laughs> but this sort like a satire about heaven being run as a corporation. This is a thing that I am uh, all over. And Simon Rich, I think, is just a really funny, awesome young writer that it will be great to follow his career. Yeah, if what in if what in God's name does not sound like your thing, I highly and sincerely recommend The Last Girlfriend on Earth. Um, super short stories one to five pages each. Um, I was texting uh, fellow Book Riot writer Greg as I was reading them about the funny parts, and he's like, yeah, yeah, I know. I told you about the book. <laughs> <laughs> but that's the kind of experience that's that awesome. Simon Rich will give you. Uh, and the last new book this week that I want to shout out is sort of a family shout out oh, for yeah. us at Book Riot. It is called Trash Can Days, a middle school saga. It's by Teddy Steinkellner, and Teddy is the brother of Book Riot writer Kit Steinkellner. Uh, so this is uh, a new and funny take on the perils of being a middle school student. Um, it's about a kid named Jake Schwartz uh, for, who is starting middle school but is not happy about it. Uh, it says your puberty feels light years away and he doesn't have the cool clothes and he doesn't speak the right lingo. And to like add on to all of this, he's also getting ready for his bar mitzvah. Um, but he has a best friend who is his lifelong best friend and is supposed to be by his side, but maybe not. Mm-hmm. Uh, so sort of classic, funny, uh, angsty, young person story. Never goes um, out of style. Never goes out of style. Timeless experience. Could not be happier uh, for Teddy Steinkellner yeah. and Trash Can Days. To harken back to a previous show title, just, you know, people sitting around coming of age. Coming of, sitting around coming of age. <laughs> Great. Those are that's a nice, that's a nice mix of new books. Yeah. Well, fall's coming. Yes. It's right around the corner, sadly, I think. Well, you're really looking for, I'm, I'm, mo- oh, I'm mourning summer I'm already. I'm so ready for fall. I, I gave in last week and roasted a chicken, even though it was like 90 <laughs> degrees. I well, like it's a sacrifice? Was like, oh, no, no, like to oh, eat. No. I was just like, I'm just going to turn the air conditioner way down and pretend <laughs> that it's cold outside and we are eating this chicken because I cannot hold out for fall any longer. So anyway, back to school, Renaissance Learning, a company that does research and um, consulting for educational programs, whatever, they do an annual survey about what students are reading um, in, hmm. in school, and they release their infographic because that's what people who do surveys do now. It's, it's all about the infographic. Um, and I thought there were some pretty interesting things here. Um, let's see. What do, you think, you, you, what, what do you think is most interesting? I don't need to hawk this one. The I mean, though it's mine really and I found in... it, I don't need to hawk oh, it. But... Right. Congrats. Jeff, do you want a cookie for finding yeah, an infographic? Right, actually, yeah. Um, there's a, a section here that tracks the most popular yeah. books that were the most popular required reading titles from 1907 to the present. And they touch at 1907, 1923, 1964, and 2012. Um, in 1907, the top three were Julius Caesar, yeah, I think that's why they include that, just a slightly different order. Yeah, it's interesting. In the intervening years, in 1923... This is the one that blew me away. Yeah, there were. there's no Shakespeare in 1923. Um, there's Two the books Bi- I've never heard of. Yeah, okay, good. So right. the one that I know of here is Ivanhoe right. um, in 1923. And then the other two are The Rivals by Richard Brinsley Sheridan. I have no idea what that is. And something called So Rob and Rustum. 
by Matthew Arnold? Oh, Matthew Arnold. I mean, I wonder if that's the same as the famous 19th century literary critic. It might be. I don't know that mm. particular title. Um, so 1923 is just like, there's like a weird wormhole oh, of stuff that people didn't year. read. Because then, then by 64, it starts to feel familiar. And then yeah. 2012 gives, gives the people the three from 2012. Right. And in 2012, the top three were To Kill a Mockingbird, The mm-hmm. Crucible, and Night by Elie Wiesel. Yeah. So no Shakespeare. No Shakespeare. And then two of those things hadn't been written in 1964, so um, that's pretty interesting. Yeah, that's really interesting to see. I mean, Shakespeare, I guess, you know, we're going to read that for a while. It's weird they dropped out in the 20s the top three and then made a return. And and it shows um, alongside each title from the previous years where those titles are currently ranked. Uh, for I guess popularity in required reading, and then there's also the most the most read Common Core standard exemplars, right? right. Which uh, shows for grades nine and ten, it's To Kill a Mockingbird, mm-hmm. and for grades eleven and twelve, it's The Great Gatsby, and that gave me like Scooby Doo confused noise. <laughs> <laughs> like, uh, Great Gatsby seems eleventh uh, and twelfth grade seems late to me for The Great Gatsby. I don't know. No, no I'm, I don't. Not necessarily. What are you, 16, 17, 18? Yeah. I, see, I still think that's pretty young for the great. I mean, I don't know. Maybe that's well, just Well, I mean, me. I think high school in general is like too young to really get like yeah. the, the longing and like nostalgia slash and sadness. And the murder, suicide, and the drinking. Mm-hmm. Like, right, I all that, like, that great wasted youth right, yeah, stuff right. you don't really appreciate. But I, they made me read it in ninth grade. Sure. <laughs> you know, it's that old, it's that old war that neither side is completely wrong or completely yeah. right about should you should kids read about stuff that's relevant to them or should they read about should they read the other than the classics and things about adulthood and blah 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 mm-hmm. i'm not particularly interested in that myself what was but, interesting to you here um well all of those things too there's they also gave a breakdown of the average books read per student and the mm-hmm. average words read per student for one through grades one through five six through eight and nine through twelve so the average number of books read in grades one through five forty one point seven but okay. only for 208,000 words. So a lot of short books. Sure. Right. Six through eight, that dropped down to 13.1 books, but then the number of words actually more than doubled to 433,000 words. And this is the one that got me, is in grades nine through 12, the books drop to 5.6. Huh. 5.9, excuse me. And then the number of words read doesn't, it, it drops to 307 words. So fewer books and fewer words in nine through 12 than yeah. six through eight. So that's I guess the so positive spin might be there's you're spending more time per book in class. Mm-hmm. So you're re, you're taking a month to read The Great Gatsby, which is what 192 pages or something like mm-hmm. that. Um, or yeah, that's the only thing. Maybe you're doing more poetry. You're doing more Shakespeare, which is shorter, but you can spend a lot of time doing it. That's that's the positive spin. I guess the, the non-positive spin is that the reading just <laughs> drops off. <laughs> right, yeah, grades 6 through 8, that 13.1 books across the school year is, what, six and a half books per semester? Yeah, right. So a couple books a month. And maybe those are, you know, presumably those are shorter right. books. Um, well, because they give us through 6 through 8, they give us Tuck Everlasting, right. which is short. Roll mm-hmm. of Thunder, Hear My Cry, and I don't, you know, who knows. Um, sure. Um, and then grades 9 through 12. Kill Mockingbird shortish. One, Isn't I'm it? trying to remember high school. It feels nah, so long no, ago. No. I mean, but, I remember in high school in 9 through 12, Dickens, we read um, yeah. Shakespeare, we read Gatsby. Mm-hmm. I can't even remember the stuff. Oh, Scarlet Letter. Scarlet Letter, Fahrenheit 451. Like, right, right. Beloved. Of, and definitely not 
a whole month on a book. I think the only time that I spent a month on a book in high school was on the Inferno in mm-hmm. AP English senior year. But mm-hmm. maybe they're not counting like those giant. Um, I don't know if anthologies. Anthology. Yeah, the yeah, anthologies. Maybe they're doing more that, anthologies and readers. Maybe that's one book. That's interesting. I don't know yeah, the answer. The short part, stories. Know, they could be doing a, short stories. We spent a lot of time my freshman and sophomore years in high school in the giant anthology yeah, textbooks. We did too. You know, reading sinners in the hands of an angry oh, god man. And <laughs> you're just you're just you're just hovering over the pit of fire <laughs> and there's a sword favorites, man. over your we're rope. just like and at any moment you could fall into the fire they so could just great get cut off i love those old we'll have to uh, this is you know sort of beside the point right. but in my weird reading kryptonites it's like uh the Puritan sermons. Oh, really? i just like cannot cotton mather and jonathan edwards and all that stuff jonathan edwards rings a oh, lot that's of my bells. So inter- well, you like, I, anyway, it's like we can talk anthropological. About <laughs> yeah, right. That's interesting. <laughs> uh, so we'll put that in the show notes if you want to take a look. Um, there's some other interesting analysis of that in the report. Mm-hmm. Um, more statistics? Let's do it. So this might be insider baseball, but we're interested in it. So you know what? Welcome aboard. Uh, the Global 60, Publishers Weekly, published a story that broke down the largest book publishers in the world um, by revenue and location. Mm-hmm. Um, and so one thing we hear a lot in our travels um, with our little, you know, dog and pony show around the world is that publishing is consolidating, there are fewer outlets, and that literature and books is becoming a monoculture, meaning it's becoming consolidated by fewer and fewer players. Well, this this statistic, this chart shows that that's not true. So the one that I thought was pretty interesting, sales of the top 10 publishers accounted for 55% of the revenue. Mm-hmm. Um, so that's actually down from 57% in 2001. So the top 10 companies, and these are the big boys, right? We're talking yeah. Penguin, Random House, um, Reuters, Hachette, Hachette um, and then some international ones I don't know that I won't um, butcher their languages by trying to read in the UK and New Zealand. Mm-hmm. Yeah, Scholastic um, is number 10. Right. And um, right, McGraw-Hill is number eight. Um, and Holtbrink is a giant German publisher is mm-hmm. number nine. So though these, these, and there we're talking revenue, $9 billion in revenue for, for Pearson, which is the parent company or was the parent company of Penguin. Mm-hmm. Reed, 5 billion. Reuters, 5 billion. Volters, um, which is a Dutch publisher, 4.7. So these are huge. And the top 10 of them are just over half of the of the book marketplace. So that means the rest is 45%. Yep. Um, and there are, you know, the number 41 publisher is still doing $426 million in revenue in a year, which is a big company mm-hmm. um, in valuation. That'd be a multi-billion dollar company. So I guess my inclination and personality about these things is not to be alarmist. Like right. it takes a lot to alarm me. So I'm always finding, trying to find ways not to be alarmed. And maybe that's a bias on my part, but am I right to read this as maybe we shouldn't be as worried about as the consolidation and how there's only going to be like three dudes, you know, <laughs> controlling what we get to read. Am I wrong or am I right about that? I think you're right about this, but I'm also, I, I default to, uh, everybody be cool. <laughs> <laughs> Right. Uh, but I, I I think that you're right. I read the story um, when it showed up in your critical linking column this week and looked at the chart. And, okay, so these 10 players, 
have more than half of the field, but that does mean that everybody else has 45%, which is close enough to half for me to feel, you know, if, if one or two players had half um, and were gaining on everybody else or were gobbling up um, smaller publishers and acquiring smaller publishers rapidly, maybe I would be willing to be a little bit worried about this Mm -hmm. monoculture. Um, But yeah, I'm not, I'm not worried. I see there's such a diversity of books still coming out and there's a huge diversity of publishers and a lot of small publishers that are thriving and doing really interesting work that large publishers um, are not willing to to take on or to experiment with. Um, Like just the mail that comes to my house encourages me about the diversity of books that are coming out and the number of publishers that are working. So I'm, I'm anecdotally not worried. And with Mm -hmm. this data, I am not worried. Um, it's just not as interesting of a story, I guess. Like you can't really write, uh, you're not going to get great headlines out of like everybody. Everything's pretty much as it was. Yeah. Everybody be cool. We Uh, should have a Tumblr called everybody. Anyway, (laughs) (laughs) our secret. There's uh, a couple of other, yeah, there's a couple other (laughs) things I think that were worth noting. I've never seen a list like this, though. I've been, I've been paying attention to like the meta publishing stuff for not as long. Crunchy data. Yeah. The the one thing that surprised me for looking at just the top 10 publishers, how many of them are Anglophone publishers? Mm Mm-hmm. Of the top 10, let's see, one, two, three, four, half of them are English yeah. um, language publishers. The other one is Dutch, one's German, one's French, one's Spanish, another German. Um, and then, you know, it, even going down the list, there's a lot more. You know, the largest Chinese publisher doesn't come until 22, which I thought interesting. was interesting. Um, the largest Asian publisher is um, a word I can't say. but I, I mean, I I could try, but I'm not going to. Um, that's a Japanese publisher, number 14. Mm-hmm. Um, and then from there, you know, it fractures to some degree, but how much English language publishing really does dominate um, international publishing. Mm-hmm. Americans and English speakers in general notoriously are pretty bad about yeah, reading in other languages, and that's, you know, that's one of the mm-hmm. lot more people mm-hmm. speaking English um, right now around the world that are buying books than other people, and that's really reflected in these numbers. Yeah. And I think if um, you and I have both read the book I'm about to drop, and I think we've talked about it on the show before, but if you're, if you're listening to the show and you go to this chart and you enjoy this kind of data and you want to get more into why and how is it that small publishers have continued to thrive and that large publishers aren't just um, buying up everybody, merchants of culture. uh, I don't have it in front of me, but we'll put it in the show notes with the author's names and the, Mm -hmm. um, and the information is a great history of publishing in the U S and the UK, um, sort of how small houses became conglomerates and how other small houses stayed small houses. Um, super interesting stuff from the data corner here on Book Riot. Cool. Okay, we got one more story. <laughs> one more. This is this is, comes to us from the department of like cool things that the internet makes possible right, that were yeah, not exactly. possible previously. Yeah. Uh, so Megan Mayhew Bergman, who wrote a short story collection called Birds of a Lesser Paradise that came out last year, I believe, one of the best short story collections that I have read in a very long time. So I love her. I am predisposed to think that things that she does are (laughs) cool. Uh, But she partnered with Medium.com, which is a relatively new player in sort of social networking, long form writing. Um, And basically, Medium lets you blog, but then lets people who are reading it put in feedback, like not just comments, but feedback about the actual content. Um, So she partnered up with Medium to write a short story 
Um, oh, and Plowshares Literary Magazine as well. Um, she's writing the short story, but she's uh, letting readers advise her as she goes in sort of a choose-your-own-adventure style. Right. Um, we'll drop the link in the show notes. I think it's super cool just for a for a writer to throw herself into um, into here's my idea, but where does a reader want the story to go? How could this story be better? Um, I follow her on Twitter, and so I've seen her talking about the interactions that she's had with readers through medium Mm -hmm. and through doing this and what it's been like for her as a writer to have this kind of interaction rather than having writing be a solitary thing. Interesting. Um, Yeah. It's worth looking at. I think if you're interested in what do you think about this? So in in theory, it's cool, but tell tell me more about this idea of having people help you decide how to end the story. I think that I like it as an experiment, but I wouldn't want all of my literature created this way. Well, I guess we don't want all of our literature created in any particular (laughs) way. I guess that makes sense. Right. Like sometimes crowdsourcing is brilliant. Uh, And of course, like she gets to, Megan Mayhew Bergman gets to ultimately decide which feedback to take and which feedback to ignore. Oh, so Um, it's not like a voting thing. Like, you know, there's not going to be like whatever gets the most... Yeah, no. She asks, she's she's got got the work in progress. And um, it says, you know, read the story and then tell me. Does Emery go to rehab or run away? So it's kind of a binary. Oh, yeah. You do get to write. So there's two choices. You get to tweet your vote and explain it by leaving margin notes on Medium why you think it should go one way or the other. And then you can post comments or questions about the story itself or technical aspects of the writing. Mm -hmm. Um, But she says here, having an exchange is a way to honor the messy and beautiful process of creation and the sacred relationship between writer and reader sacred um, is strong it sacred is. is strong but it's a, a cool strong. thing um, i know it's cool yeah I, yeah i, think I do i like I, i'm i'm conflicted i want to read how this all turns yeah. out um, well but here, I have here's to... the here's the test would you rather just read the story that she decided however she decided to end it like the author's intent and mm-hmm. vision or would you prefer to have the story that you know the the crowd sort of decided to to do in this one case no 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 no, no, you no, mean no just no, in no. general just in general oh just in general i guess i'm a purist that of course way. You are. I would, yeah i, mean, yeah. I think yeah. most people are so i would yeah in general i would want it to be yeah so it's really the, the novelty wants. of this that's interesting i think it's a cool experiment yeah. but I, like in other media uh, House of Cards on Netflix, which has been super popular, um, right. and earned Netflix their first Emmy nomination for their Netflix original. That show um, was subjected to like basically crowdsourced yeah, style right. um, testing, like audience testing throughout, like rather than just prior to its release. But they um, they crafted the plot of the show and the characters to respond to what viewers wanted. Right. Um, and it performed really well. Sure. Uh, because they gave people what they right. wanted. Right. Gave people what so they want. They it's not the way deep, that I They want. gave them yeah. deep fried dough and chocolate. I mean, <laughs> right. that's... Right. I don't want art. I, w- I don't want all art to go that way. There's, yeah. there's definitely something valuable about, um, about authors doing, you know, creating the thing that they set out to right. create. Yeah. But, I, I'm, I'm extreme in that position as well. Like, I kind of even don't want editors, <laughs> to be honest with you. <laughs> like, I want the thing, like, I, I prefer an interesting mess. I mean, that's just mm-hmm. how I am in general. Mm-hmm. Um, but, you know, this story is about Maxwell Perkins, and he turned all these books that we, you know, we call classics and how in- instrumental. is like, I kind of wish I just got the original Great yeah. Gatsby or whatever it was Fitzgerald had. 
Mm-hmm. And they thought, you know what, that's it. That's my best effort. I kind you of know, wish we had that. Instead. Maybe this is like this would be a cool thing for publishers to do with digital technology. Oh, I know where you're going. I like it already. Go is ahead. release the edited version of the book and then also just what the author's final draft was. That before is an it, amazing before idea. Before it went through editing. Um, I don't know if you have novel like novelist friends. I have novelist friends, and so I've. Um, <laughs> this, Does anyone I've, have novelist friends? No, I feel like a jerk <laughs> saying no, know, it, but one of my close friends um, is working on her third novel, and I've read it in several different right. forms now, um, and now it's with her editor, and so I think you know pretty soon the book will be coming out, and I'll get to read it again after it like it finished her writing, and so right. I'll get to see what happened to it after the editor got her hands on it. But as a reader, that's a, it's a super interesting sure. experience, and I would love to to see that. There's a um, there's a very popular publisher um, now whose whose books I have I read when she started publishing, um, but it has felt to me every time I've read one uh-huh. of her books like they're too edited, yep. uh, like they're edited with an eye toward always having a movie made of the book. Mm-hmm. Um, it just feels a little too commercial. She's thinking a little too much about what people will like. Um, and I would love to see what the mess was before yeah. she got her hands on those. I think I would like those books better. Messy. That would be interesting. Like you get the sort of um, theatrical release, right? Yeah. You get the the one that you would buy in hardback. But maybe I guess I don't want a first draft. Like whatever the the writer's quote unquote final draft was right. before they opened it up for an outside party to change. That's the one. I think that's the one I'm most. Maybe yeah, I'd be that's... proven wrong. And all the books I loved are complete garbage. <laughs> but it would be so level. interesting to know. But it would be so interesting to know. And some of those things you can find in, like, libraries. And, you know, you can go look at uh, Hemingway's Chicken Scratch over some drafts. of. That's not what I mean. I don't want to do that. I want the thing right there and see yeah, it. Yeah, I think you want it. I want to see what the story looked like when the author said, I have done everything to this story that I can do to it. This, right. is, this is the best that I've got. Yeah, and I'm happy right. with it. And like, this is what I want to tell. This is you know what I want to tell. This is what I want to show my readers. That's right. where I want to see the story. And then just to be able to put it side by side um, with what the edited version looked like would be interesting. Really interesting. I mean, some of the things that we all call classics and immortal works would look a hell of a lot different. Oh, I think so. I mean, a heck and, of a lot different. And we talk like it comes out in. Uh, in reviews often, like this book was too long or it was yeah. bloated or it could have been, it could have used more of the well, red even pen. Well, writers say like, you know, and then my editor made this one suggestion in the book and they really made the book better. And I was like, oh, <laughs> really? Like your editor, if they're so great, why aren't they? Anyway, whatever. <laughs> <laughs> you know what I'm saying. I'm trying not yeah, to be a jerk. Yeah, but we don't but... like we just don't often get that other yeah, side. You don't no. hear like this book should have been less edited or it should have been <laughs> messier. But right. I would, I find that appealing. Um, yeah, yeah. I, I I don't know. I think we get a lot of more weirder stuff, and I'm always I'm always in favor. Oh of yeah, that weird. Stuff. We love weird. Well, we got to end the show, man. We do. We got we got some stories in the holster for next week, so we'll 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 put those to the side there. So what should we tell the people? I'm Jeff O'Neill. You can follow me on Twitter at Reading Ape. I'm Rebecca Shinsky, and you can follow me on Twitter at Rebecca Shinsky, S-C-H-I-N-S-K-Y. If you've got feedback for us, we got some very nice notes recently and some, some stories that people sent us that we didn't even get to in the show that we'll have to get to next week about follow-up. Um, for feedback, podcast at bookriot.com. You can find us. If you want to rate the show on iTunes, that's you know a super easy way to let other people find out about the show. It goes into the magic Apple algorithm, which no one understands and helps people find it. So that's been great. A lot of fun reviews. We really appreciate that there um, and, and, and ratings. 
Uh, what else should we do? What you can hang out with us online, of course, there, yeah, of course, at bookriot.com, but also on Twitter at bookriot or on Facebook, facebook.com slash bookriot. Uh, we put out stories that aren't stories that we've written and also cool things that we found all over the internet on Facebook and Twitter. So if you like the mix of stuff we're doing here on the show, you'll probably find some interesting things uh, from what we do on Facebook and Twitter, and we'd love to hang out with you there. Yeah, you can find us. We, we write stuff all the time. Um, last thing, we've got a couple of sponsorships open for the next couple of weeks. There's some spots, so I don't know if anyone out there is interested, but hit us up at podcast at bookriot.com. We oh. can tell you about the 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 uh, process and let you know if it's a good fit for you. One last thing. We need to ask you a favor. Oh, Um, yeah. We are conducting a survey to help us Let's sort of lock in a better understanding of who our listeners are so that we can get the best advertisers possible and have sponsors that will be relevant and interesting right. to you. So if you would do us the favor, um, we'll drop a link to the survey in the show notes here, podcast or bookriot.com slash category slash podcast. Um, look for those show notes, click on the link. It is seven questions. It'll take you less than two minutes yep. and we will be super grateful. Um, super and grateful. You will also uh, get to experience the benefits of that when you hear about sponsors that will be relevant and useful to you and make you buy more books which you know is you know that's the double-edged sword of being a reader man i'm just never going to be sorry about making people buy no more books. no sorry not sorry all right guys <laughs> sorry, not thank sorry. you Have so much for week. listening we'll talk to you next week